0: Beauty is about noticing what is, not what should be. And I think shame lives and should. And I spent so much of my life being told what I should be, what I should do, what I should wear. And all of that was other people's shame that they were outsourcing onto me. And I think being alive is a rebellious act. It's different than existing. And being alive is actually about insisting that you're a soul first. And what that means to live life soul first is to, Excuse yourself from other people's shame.
1: Hello, friends. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Quote, we want a world where boys can feel, girls can lead, and the rest of us can not only exist but thrive. This is not about erasing men and women, but rather acknowledging that man and woman are two of many stars in a constellation that do not compete, but amplify one another's shine." Unquote. My guest this week, the wonderful human that wrote the words I just read to you, is the magnificent Alok. They are a gender non-conforming writer, artist, activist, performer, fashion designer, the founder of the de-gender fashion movement, and I could go on and on and on. I first encountered them a year or two ago, and I was immediately struck by their presence, their command of language, and their ability to share important ideas and truths in compelling and tangible ways. I was also, to be very honest, surprised to never see them hate on homophobic and transphobic people, the very same people that make fun of them the very same people that have physically harmed them, the people that filmed them when they walk down the street. It's the same kind of surprise I have when I see black and brown people pursue unity with the very same people that hate on them because of the color of their skin or where they come from. I'm wonderfully surprised by these amazing humans in the best kind of way. During this conversation with Alok, we discussed their upbringing in Texas, their Beyond the Gender Binary book, how they learned about shame at far too early of an age, how we can help those around us become less transphobic and homophobic and more equitable and inclusive, and so much more. This conversation is beautiful, and I hope you listen to every word, because you and I have so much to learn from Alok. Oh, and make sure to check out the show notes this week. You'll find a link to buy their Beyond the Gender Binary book. You'll find links to go see them on tour right now as they tour the U.S. and the U.K. And you'll find a link to their Goodreads account where they share hundreds of books and resources with us. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the truly stunning Alok Let's Go. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast, Alok. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time. Uh, there are very few people that I truly and consistently learn from on the internet and you're one of them. Uh, you've been a, a very consistent voice in my life over the last couple years. And I'll share a little bit of my story as this conversation evolves, where I've come from a very, uh, deeply conservative Christian homophobic environment. And it's really been the last. I never felt comfortable in that environment, but it was my environment. It was the only environment I thought existed because we were so sheltered. It was like, this is the way the world is, right? This is it, black and white. And the last 10 years, but especially the last five years have been a lot of changes and transformations happening in my life and a lot of people that I love. And um, especially over the last year or two, since I met your content online, um, you've been such a great great voice in that conversation. So I'm so happy to be finally meeting you in person and doing this. I think it's interesting time for our conversation. Um, we've had to reschedule those a couple of times, every time my fault. Uh, but it, May 17 last week was international day against homophobia, biphobia and transphobia. And then we've got uh, June coming up pride month. So, very interesting time. We could obviously have this conversation and should be having the, the the kinds of stuff we're talking about each and every day, every day, every week, every month. Um, but I'm really glad that it kind of lands here during these days when we've seen lots of posts and uh, we're. And I, I want to get to this later in the conversation. We're about to see lots of social media logos change. You know, to pride flags and a lot of a lot of weird stuff. A lot of like genuine support and then a lot of Um, showy stuff that I would love to hear what you think of those things, right? Because uh, a lot of people think they're doing the right thing, especially during June. does it help, right? Uh, Walmart last week uh, released a Juneteenth ice cream. And within one week, they pulled the shelves because everybody was like, fuck that. Like that is what? Like you made an ice cream. That's your way of supporting, you know, what black and brown people have been going through for hundreds of years. And so there's just a lot of that coming up. And I would really, I respect your voice so much and would love to uh, hear it. Before we get into your work and your life and all the amazing things that I really want to get to in this conversation, can we take a moment to honor and eulogize your aunt? Yeah. You have shared uh, quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. And I hate that I hadn't known about her or met her through you uh until now she seems like she was and is an amazing human so can you just talk and she was a hell of an activist and a human and spoke up and spoke out is there anything you would like to say even just for a minute to the listeners here about who your
0: aunt was yeah you know it's interesting because the peak of her political participation was in the early 90s which was when i was born and so I've been watching so many videos that I never saw before because I was a baby. So I didn't know any of these things were happening. Yeah. And in one of them, it's a clip from her in 1992 at the Republican National Convention, which was in Houston. I grew up an hour and a half away from Houston. And so I asked my mom, like, did she visit us on that trip? And she was like, yeah. And it was just it just hit me like a ton of bricks because my sister just had her first child and I'm in my early 30s. And I'm having to navigate the same political dynamics that Orbishi had to navigate 30 years ago, where the right wing was demonizing, at that time, gay and lesbian people, and now trans and gender non-conforming people, recycling the same arguments that were dangerous, that we pose a threat to the family, to time itself, to the future of the country. And watching these clips of her speak with so much conviction, I just kind of knew it, that what fueled her rage and sustained her activism was love was Mm. because she knew that I was an hour and a half away and she had just seen me. And I think that often gets cut from the biography of political figures, the emotional connections they have, the ways in which relationships help inform their political practice. I felt it unambiguously that her ferocity um, paled in comparison to the extent of her love for me. In her first book, Virtual Quality, my friend just sent me a, a picture of this in her credits. She thanks every single person in our family. At this, wow. I, I think I'm like four years old at this point, and she says, like, to my nephew, Alok, for being so cute. Like, I hadn't contributed anything to her life, and yet she felt the need to thank me. And I think that sense of due diligence of acknowledging the ecosystems that we're a part of is something that I bring with me today. It's interesting
1: that you point out that what she did and who she was came as a result of love because you pointed out in one social media post that your aunt told you that she was the first one in your Indian family to say the words, I love you. And it just so happens like three days ago, I was scrolling through TikTok and this Indian woman, I don't even know who she was, but she was being interviewed by on some podcast. And they were talking about just that. They were so surprised. These two white guys were in And they were so surprised because this woman said, I've never said I love you to my husband. I've never said I love you to my kids. And they went on to say, what do you say I love you to? And she's like, food. Like, food's amazing. I love food. But I've never said... So in a culture where... That's not something that is said or shared, even though the sentiment is there. Where, how did she? H- how did that happen for her? Do
0: you know? I think I know. You know, there's so many stories about she and I, I really do hope that people take the time to immerse themselves in her work. But I think where she became most politicized was during the failure of this government to respond to the HIV/AIDS crisis. Mm. And she spoke so painfully about all the friends she watched die and all the people that she caretaked for. And she was familiar with death in a way that no one else in my family was. To lose friends who are your peers that young at such a scale, I think, made her have to articulate what they meant. I think that it's often when faced with the existential threat of losing something that we realize how much we love it. And I can imagine that at that period in her life, she felt such a deep kind of onslaught of love in her that it forced her to have to say something that she didn't grow up saying. And the story that my other aunt said at the funeral about it was that Orvis, brought that back to my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then I grew up with my grandmother saying it to me. And that's just an illustration, I think, of the ways in which there's a chain reaction that occurs when we care and love for each other, when we're careful with one another. That means that that, next per- that person's gonna, gonna carry it forward, right? And so I guess I'm just seeing and acknowledging the ways in which Orvishi's political work, and I think love is political work, um, created the capacity for me in explicit ways, but then also in subtle ones, like having a grandmother who said that they loved me on the phone. Mm-hmm.
1: I have found, as I study and learn from all kinds of activists, ones that no one knows about and the more famous ones, the activists and passionate change makers that made it, that stayed in the quote-unquote business of activism for a long, 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 long time, they also like love was the impetus for that work it wasn't just anger it wasn't just yeah anger burning anger at all the horrible things that are happening in the world that we can change and should change and aren't changing there was also this love and empathy and it sounds like she had that because it seems like she this was this wasn't like a a little section of her life this was her life was to speak up and speak out. I also noticed that I saw a lot of you in her. And I don't know how that happened or if you even see that as well. Just the the, the poetic and articulate way. I mean, she was so well-spoken. There was a, a deliberate, very deliberate nature. There wasn't a fumbling over. Like it wasn't, she knew what she wanted to say and she said it. And people heard it and received it. Do you see that? In do you see that parallel? Because I noticed it when I watched that video clip that you shared, I was like,
0: "Oh my God, this this sounds a lot like a loke. Yeah, I see it now. I think it's what my mom always tells me if only the young knew and if only the old could.
1: When mm. I was younger,
0: I spent so much time distancing myself from her. I thought I was way cooler. <laughs> I thought I was way more on the cusp. I thought she was so old school. And I would constantly try to disavow any kind of relation. People would be like, oh, my God, you look just like her. You're so similar. I'd be like, no, we're totally different. Mm. And then now that she's gone, I'm like, oops, like, we're actually really similar. Um, And in fact, so much of my ability to argue with her and say that I was different was a byproduct of her templating that for me first and showing me what it's like to push back against people with authority and power over you. I felt comfortable enough to disagree with her. And I think many people harbor disagreement, but can't articulate it because they're afraid of losing connection or intimacy. But she made me know that no matter how much I protested, she would always be there. And I think that's a working definition for love I want to include in my life too, is to create space for dissent. And it's interesting because Orvashi's death comes two years after our my grandfather, her father's death, which I was really involved with here. He was staying in New York City at the end of his life. And the through line to him, to Orishi to me, is just so explicit. Like, it's just so real. The way that he spoke, when I look, he was a writer, a novelist, a playwright. When I look at the way that he spoke, I see us all in it. When I look at the way that he wrote, I see us all in it. And it's humbling, I think, because we want to have this narrative that we are unprecedented and we're individual, But I think I'm being continually reminded how the ecosystems and environments that we're a part of, to your point before, really do shape us. Thank you
1: for indulging me and sharing a bit about her life. I I want to, I didn't even know she authored books. I want to learn more about her, I hope. And if there's anything that, I'll be looking for stuff that I can share in the show notes so that people can take you up on your offer of learning more about who she is and what she stood for. Let's start with, uh, let's get into your family a little bit. Let's start back at the beginning. I want to go back to College Station, Texas. Um, this is a place, this is not the likely place for your family to be. And I'm just interested to hear more about how you all ended up there. I mean, 77% white, 10% Asian, 8% black, 1.45% other. Mm-hmm. And I assume that your family was in that other, right? So largely outnumbered as an immigrant family, um, how did that come to be and talk a bit about your upbringing there? Because I'm sure there were good moments, but I also know it was really fucking tough as well.
0: Yeah. You know, it's called college station because there's a college there. They weren't really that creative. There was a college and a train station. (laughs) And so my mom, they were not trying really hard. (laughs) So my mom got a a professorship at the local university, Texas A&M university And uh, according to her story, when she uh, got the offer, she thought she'd just be there for like a year or two and then pivot. Like she could never have imagined herself in a small town in Texas. But then she had my sister. And then as it came to be, 30 plus years transpired. And I think it's a story of many actually academics of color across this country who just kind of go where the job is and then end up in the middle of nowhere. And so we grow up. the the kids of academics in these places with this very stark division between the kind of echo chamber of our families and the peers, which tend to be professorial kids too, um, who are progressive and thoughtful and intellectual. And then these towns that have completely different histories and relationships to the world. I found myself living back in College Station uh, at the beginning of the pandemic for almost a year it was the longest time I had been back and since growing up. And so I, I really made it a, a point to learn the history of my town, specifically the history of lynching, the history of slavery, the history of in, in, in indigenous occupation and genocide. And, and, and it just all made sense to me. Um, I think that when we speak about the South and when we speak about places like Texas, we do this work of saying it's homogeneously conservative, but alongside it, there has always been... Such vibrant and powerful resistance from Black, Native, and migrant communities, and so it was really humbling, actually, to to be able to drive around my town and see, like, oh my gosh, this was an area where free Black people assembled and 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 built a life that was trying to to do something better and different than this. So, the parts of me that are proud of being a Texan are the parts of me that are part of that legacy of dissent.
1: I get caught a lot of times shitting on the South, and a lot of it is well-placed and well-deserved. But I really am grateful for, before moving to New York, which this is, I hope, our home for forever and ever. It's honestly the last city in the U.S. that before we leave the country and never come back. Like, I've lived all over the U.S., I've lived all over the world. But before this, we lived in Nashville for four years. It was not our ideal spot, but we had always lived before that Seattle and we were plane rides away from our families who lived here on the East coast and it just got harder and harder, you know, three kids going back and forth several times a year. So we're like, fuck it. Let's just move closer for a bit. And when we looked at different cities, Atlanta, Asheville, Nashville, we chose Nashville. We had some friends there and I largely disliked my time there, Mm. um, Politically, it is being run by the the greatest, uh, <laughs> to borrow from Queen Hillary's uh, rhetoric, the, the greatest basket of depl- Like, you could not put together a greater basket of deplorables. Um, just the, the craziest people legislating the craziest stuff. And I was just, I felt really that and all the police violence. There were horrible things happening during the time that I lived there. And then, horrifically, George Floyd was you know, murdered at the beginning of the pandemic. And what I saw, so the pandemic was really hard to as well, you know, go through like it was everywhere. But I, I, oddly enough, started to enjoy Nashville a bit more. And the enjoyment came from when people started marching, when people started dissenting, when people put their bodies on the line to get arrested, when my friend, Justin Jones, who was running for... Uh, house seat right now in Nashville when he and dozens of other people set up camp for 60 plus days at the Plaza and were arrested over and over and over again for being on our property. But Bill Lee didn't see it that way. Governor Bill Lee. The, the, the dissenters that I saw rise up, I mean, white kids and brown kids and black kids, and everybody came out young and old and everybody in between. I'm not from Tennessee. So there wasn't that like, I'm I'm proud to be a Tennessean. I don't think I'll ever feel that because we only were there for four years. But I was finally happier to be in that place. Because all I if you if you don't meet people and if you don't get involved as an activist and politically and socially, well, you just think that everybody's homophobic and racist, and many of them are. So I hear you that. That when you, yeah, when you truly get to know the place, right? When you start seeing the street names and you, and you know that, okay, that's the lunch counter, John Lewis, like you start seeing all these things right in your immediate vicinity, um, gives you a deeper appreciation, even if there's still a lot of horrible things associated with that. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so college station, you just described it a bit. Um, I just read this allure piece that you wrote the other day. Mm -hmm. About degendering beauty, and we'll talk about degendering fashion here in a bit. But degendering beauty, and in one paragraph, you said, "I want to talk a little bit more about your childhood there before we move on." Uh, quote: "I was raised in Texas, home to countless amazing communities, cultures, subcultures, artists, and activists. And right now, some of the most restrictive legislation toward LGBTQIA plus people, particularly trans and gender nonconforming youth. Growing up, beauty was a thing that I never felt I could have." I think I had a deeper and more intimate relationship with ugliness. Beauty would feel like a failed project. And no matter what haircut I got or what I wore, I had no control of the indelible facts of my upbringing. I was brown and hairy and queer and gender nonconforming and all the things that were quote, wrong, unquote. I did not know anyone who looked like me or who felt or thought like me. So I was made to be like the leftovers of other people's beauty making in order for them to be beautiful, this was the part that got me of this paragraph. In order for them to be beautiful, I had to not be. So you were just there for a year. And as you as you reflect back on your childhood, in your book, you said, I learned about gender through shame. And you were, in that part of the book, you were talking about this talent show, right? So talk about those. As you're coming into your own and as you're figuring out not where you're going or whatever, just who you are. You're, you're figuring out who you are. How, how was that encounter with shame for the first time in those feelings of for them to be beautiful? I had to be not beautiful,
0: ugly. Hmm. I think the purpose of language is to continually fail us. And that's, what's so annoying about it is the promise of it. We think That's interesting that it's going to like encapsulate an emotion, but the emotion always wins in a sparring match. And so what so many people call beautiful is not because it actually requires a bludgeon. I'm beautiful because I'm not this. I'm beautiful because I'm not fat. I'm beautiful because I'm not dark skin. I'm beautiful because I'm not gender nonconforming. And that's not beauty. That's insecurity. And what true beauty is, is actually the ability to exist without comparison. Um, a kind of isness of being. There's beauty in being. And being is not a competitive on- enterprise. Being is not, a, it's a collaborative enterprise, but not a competitive one. And so back then I had a malnourished idea of beauty. It had been depleted, kind of like, when you fly into Colorado and you're like, wait, I don't have as much air as I thought right. I did. That was the definition of beauty I had. And, and now I realize that beauty w- was exercised as a tool of that shame because the way that they could justify their mistreatment of me was by saying that I was ugly, so then I had it coming. Um, because of the way that I looked, then everything against me was natural. And the unlearning mm. that we have to do is to actually remember that what we look like should have absolutely no bearing on our safety, our dignity, or anything, really. What we look like is so irrelevant, actually. And so my my return to the word beauty has been interesting for me, anthropologically, to observe from outside of myself, because I'm like, wow, this has been such a wound, this word. It's been used against me in so many ways, that now I started to claim it and to claim it publicly, mm. and to say that the things that you think of as being abject and dirty and wrong and crass and uncouth, those things are actually the beautiful things. They're the things that make this life worth living. And when I say that gender diversity is beautiful, I'm not saying that gender nonconforming people are somehow more. I'm saying it's in the same way that we say a sunset is beautiful. It's because it it's what it is. Um, gender diversity is. That's just the way that our species and the world has always been. And so beauty is about noticing what is, not what should be. And I think shame lives and should. And I spent so much of my life being told what I should be, what I should do, what I should wear. And all of that was other people's shame that they were outsourcing onto me. And I think being alive is a rebellious act. It's different than existing. And being alive is actually about insisting that you're a soul first. And what that means to live life soul first is to excuse yourself from other people's shame. And I think beauty continues to be an an instrument or an arsenal of shame. I notice that when I'm saying in that quote that other people become beautiful by saying that they're not me, this is so obvious around body hair. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Like, why does me keeping what grows on my skin, make people so upset. It's because of their relationship with their own body. It has actually nothing to do with me. And the only way that they've been taught beauty is through disappearance. So removal of body hair is a larger metaphor for the only way that you get seen as legitimate in the society is by literally cutting yourself off from yourself. (laughs) Literally, you have to self-immolate, disappear deny your frayed edges, give them a mirage of smoothness in order to be seen. And that wound is so deep so that when people see me, they're actually seeing what they could have been, who they could have been, if they lived life soul first. And this is not me saying everyone should stop removing their body here. I would never. Mm. But it is me saying it's interesting, the ire that occurs by something so simple, the ways in which the misinformation has made people say things like "this is dirty" or "it's just unhygienic," when the entire purpose of body hair is hygiene. By the way,
1: <laughs> I, I love that you kind of ended this this uh, monologue on the body hair thing. I think who you are and the way that you express yourself would be totally different would be totally different it would be the impact that your words have on people i think would land differently if you did everything you're doing right now but took off the body hair. to me that is a bold and a great statement because it's so true you want to make middle-aged white guys flip their fucking lid well have a girl a beautiful girl not shave her armpits, and go on TikTok and talk about that, and just say that fact. I am just l- leaving this hair that is naturally there, and they will lose their shit. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? That's so wild. Take it off if you want. As you as you said, if you want to take it off, take it off. But it's literally the most
0: natural thing that's going on in our bodies. Well, I think we really, I mean, I could explain why in terms of the history of it, but I think the deeper thing for me is not about politics. It's always about spirit. Politics is the surface. It's the icing. But sure. The deeper conversation is around spirit. And what's happening there is people use this word reality as if it's a fixed and given thing. And they use this word natural as if it's absolute. But actually reality and natural are political aesthetics. There were choices made by people with power as a way to lubricate the decisions they were making to monopolize power. And the secret is, while they might have a monopoly on power, they're soulless, so they'll never feel like it's enough. So what the body hair thing actually conjures in me is a deep mercy and compassion for people who have been misled to believe that the problem is their body and not the problem is a world that makes them have to have be an appearance as being the sum of who they are the the crisis of body here is that western culture is so vapid and fallacious that it mistakes our exterior as our interior mm. in fact there's no even vocabulary of the interior so what do you get when you dispossess millions of people from an internal life, what do you get when people don't even have a relationship with their intuition? What do you get when people don't know who they are in the inside first? As you get a world of machinery where the goal in a post-Fortist economy is to reproduce the same over and over mm. and over again. So my definition of beauty challenges them because I'm saying beauty lies in difference it's actually your irreducibility. It's your soul's fingerprint on earth. It is unique to you. No one can have your beauty. That goes against the mass production of beauty norms, which in the most capitalist, post-Fortist way is a, a massive manufacturing that has made people feel like they can only have worth based off of their exteriority. So I feel deeply sad that people have not experienced a kind of love that tells them, it doesn't matter what you look like. And I experienced that. And that was Orvashi's doing, that was my grandfather's doing, that was so many of my friends doing, that I was in spaces where what I looked like had no bearing on how people received me. And so when I see these men, and when I see these women, and even when I see Trans and non-binary people, which that's a real. I'm like, really, we're gonna we're gonna say, hey, everyone, we're challenging gender norms, except not this one. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna say reimagine right. womanhood, except right. we're gonna still say that femininity is hairlessness. When I see these people, what all of this is is misdirected plea for help. The most vocal critics, the most angry people, are the people asking for help.
1: I have so much to say. That was so good. Do you remember the first time that you felt fully you? Hmm. Like I'm talking inside and outside the whole thing, whether it was putting on a certain dress or this or that, like, do you remember the first time that you were just like, holy shit, like this is me. Or maybe it was a progressive thing. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I write about that in my book about that talent show and that that story comes to mind. When I was younger, my parents were awesome and let me wear whatever I wanted. And I thought that quote-unquote boys' clothes were just boring, so I didn't wear them. And I just asked to wear my sister's hand-me-downs in. I, I was clashing like six or seven prints. I was, had like dolphin, like Velcro sandals with like amazing floral socks. Like it was a moment. And every day, I lived myself without shame. And that idea of shame was so foreign to me. Like I was like, why would people shame me for being beautiful and free? Like, huh? And then when I performed at my elementary school talent show and everyone laughed at me for doing my interpretive dance, that's when I began to modify what I look like. Mm. I told my parents I wanted to wear more conventionally masculine clothes. I wanted to only wear black or gray or tone it down and I lost touch with that person. So, so much of my healing has been a return to that childlike wonder, that sense of spontaneity and experimentation, that, that direct relationship between this excites me, so I'm gonna be it. Now, being an adult is this excites me, but I'm gonna rationalize why I can't have it. Being an adult is I know what's gonna give me joy, but I'm gonna tell myself a million excuses to not allow myself to pursue that joy. And in that way, I think the, the cruel irony of being an adult is we perhaps have more to learn from our kids than they ask. That's, as a as a parent of three children,
1: that's a 1,000% correct. I don't want to romanticize New York City, but New York is more progressive, more. and I don't know when you were a child, I don't know if that was true because I didn't live here at the time. But knowing what you know now do you think you would have been, and this is a loaded term because who the hell, I mean, who's going to determine what that even means, but do you think you'd be better off? Like if you had grown up here, if you could have chosen growing up here versus College Station, Texas, I'm sure kids would have, may have laughed at you as well here. Like just because we're in New York, doesn't, there's a lot of yeah backward conservative, you know, right, right wing thinking. Maybe that's a dumb question, but it just came to mind. Like, do you think uh, that you would have been better off here or, or do you, in retrospect, knowing everything that you know about your childhood and growing up there and where you've made it to? No, I'll take that. I'll, I'll take what I had to go through
0: to get to where I am. Hmm. I think I'm at a place in my life right now where I am so grateful for where I'm at. And I know that I'm only where I'm at because of what I've been through. And so, yeah, maybe life would have been easier, but then maybe I wouldn't have been me. Um, I think growing up in a small town in Texas installed in me a fire that will never be extinguished. And many of my peers who grew up on the West and East Coast can get so easily jaded and not continue the fight. But I know how hard it is for the majority of people like this in the world. I know how hard it is because when I was back living in College Station, Texas, I didn't feel safe to present as myself. Mm. And... I, that's a humbling experience but like, this is the majority of people in the world can't do this. So that return to pain actually fuels me because it's totally unfair that someone zip code, that the arbitrary lines that we draw on indigenous land, that that should be a criteria on the basis of people's ability to be in public and let's be clear or let's be queer because clarity comes through queerness it's about our ability to exist that's what people like me are fighting for there's so much propaganda and fear-mongering right now that makes it think makes you think that we want special rights and acknowledgement but actually what we're literally just fighting for is the ability to exist and that's so embarrassing because there's so many other things I want to do like I would really love <laughs> I'd really love to fight for for bigger things but I and still fighting for the ability to exist in public. I still, no matter how many career accolades I get, no matter how many social media followers I have, I still have to live intimately with the fear that every single day I'm in public, I will get attacked. No one should have to live like that. Mm-mm. It's, Mm-mm. it's shocking and appalling to me that people have taken a community who has to navigate 24-7 threat of physical violence and warped it such that we are the one endangering the world. It's just, it's very wrong. It's very backward.
1: And speaking of zip codes, there's this uh, clip going, whatever, viral right now of something that Bill Maher said. Bill Maher is constantly saying things that um, make us turn our heads, right? But Bill Maher said this, if this spike in trans children is all biological, why is it regional, he asks. Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. Now, I didn't see that from Bill Maher because I don't follow Bill Maher on Twitter. I saw this clip being shared over and over and over again by right-wing conservative politicians praising Bill, this liberal talk show host, for saying what we've always been thinking. But when I listened to that, when I listened to him, it's, it's so obvious what the answer is. It's so obvious what the answer is. It's so fucking obvious that it's not either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. It's Ohio is shaming them. It is Texas is shaming them. It is Tennessee is shaming them. It is Wisconsin is shaming them, right? We can go on and name just in in, in light of the zip code uh, thing that you just said. Like There are so many places still. It is not. Regional because California is manufacturing trans kids, or New York is, or Seattle is, or Portland is. It's because largely in this land of the free and home of the brave, yada, 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 these kids, if they were to come out, I mean, kids are getting shamed just for coming out as bi or just quote unquote like regular, like gay, you know what I'm saying? Like just for being, I like girls, I like boys. Even for that, they're getting ostracized. For that, they're getting kicked out of their homes. Let alone if they come out and say, "I'm trans." So, do you, any response? <laughs> if Bill, if, if if
0: have you ever been on Bill Maher? No. Would you ever go on Bill Maher? I don't know. I never say never, but
1: <sighs> that's a hard one. Yeah. Because I don't. I I, I some during certain conversations, I really like. Bill's, you know, the way that he attacks an issue. And I'm, I actually sometimes I'm like, yes, go, you know, say that to leftist so-and-so because they need to like, just come back a little bit. But this one, when I heard it, I literally yelled out loud. I was by myself walking into like watching this video. And I'm just like, are you kidding? This is not a, and, 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 I, and I think Bill is smarter. Like Bill is smart enough to know the answer to that question, A, and B, the fact that, L- l- liberals, leftists are, are not going to share that.
0: Yeah, but what if this wasn't about intelligence and what if it was about trauma, right? It's obvious to you and me, but what if we were to do an, an exercise to say, how come it's not obvious to so many people? And to really seriously take that question. What leftists often say is it's because they're ignorant. And I, I think that's that's a cop-out. It's, it's not working. It's never worked. It's not working for sure. Um I think it's actually about trauma. It is easier to demonize trans and non-binary people than it is to sit with the heartbreak of knowing that when you were a young person and you experienced a kind of freedom and fluidity, and then the people who loved you told you, no, shut up, you have to be a boy or a girl, and this is what it means to be a boy, and this is what it means to be a girl, and they police you into that so deeply that you become the police and you defend it That's what an abusive culture does, is it recruits you into its own image. And so once again, what if we were to see all of this incendiary rhetoric as an elaborate cry for help? These people don't Mm. know love. And I feel deeply sad for them that they're more upset about the existence of gender diversity than the existence of climate change. I feel deeply sad that manufactured make-believe issues Cause we don't have make-believe genders. They have make-believe issues. It's true. That these make-believe issues take so much of their energy and time. When that energy and time could actually be going towards, I don't know, maintaining a garden, like eating really nutritious food, hanging out with your friends. You mean you mean to tell me that you're gonna spend precious moments of your mortal existence on life hating other people? That says so much more about you than it does about the people that you're hating. You don't feel like your day is worth levity. You feel like you're overcompensating for something and like you have something to prove. So how do we, and I totally
1: agree with you, and I love that you brought me back a bit because I, I agree with you. I get fired up, but I, I agree with you. And I agree with you because those people that retweeted it in the affirmative saying, yeah, they're creating them. And and it's, this is not a real thing. Those are my people. Those are the people I grew up with. I didn't grow up around progressive professors Mm -hmm. or educated people. I love my parents. Neither of them have a college degree. Um, They just worked hard blue collar jobs. My dad is an immigrant and So I totally agree. And I agree because I've seen in the in the times when I can stop, you know, not even not even saying it, but just stop acting like they're ignorant, like they're stupid, like they're foolish, and actually come into a conversation looking to help. I actually do see progress, right? It might be an inch, might be a couple inches in a conversation. But there's actual progress versus the reality that by screaming across the aisle, telling them how fucking stupid they are for believing, for even asking a question like that, that gets us nowhere, like
0: absolutely nowhere. And in fact, I think that they, they're baiting us. They want us to meet us at that frequency so that then they can caricaturize us and belittle us and then win more money and votes. I, I refuse That called because I'm not interested in even engaging in people who are operating at a lower frequency on their frequency. Mm. I'm going to live my life with love. And so, yes, of course, I'm going to have conversations across the aisle. And of course, I'm going to have debates with people who disagree with me. But if that requires me to have to indulge something that basic, mm, I want us to have the real conversation. The real conversation is. Most people don't know what love is. Most people have not been loved. Most people actually have been told that they have to disappear themselves. That's the conversation I want to have. I want to have a conversation Mm -hmm. about how we exist in a country that still, May's Mental Health Awareness Month, still sees mental health as not physical health. One of their primary talking points in the right wing right now is facts over feelings. They're indisputable biological facts, and your feelings... I hate to break it to you, but feelings come from the nervous system. Yeah, exactly. And the nervous system is part of the body, which means it's biological. So your dismissal of feelings actually is anti-biology. And in fact, we have all of the data and the science to show that feelings can lead to death. (laughs) Because actually, emotions can sublimate into illness. The mind-body split like the male, female, and boy, girl, and man, woman split is false. So the larger issues we need to address is not responding to every single individual tempting us, but how do we build a mass movement for mental health infrastructure in this country where people have free, comprehensive, trauma-informed therapy? That's what I'm interested in doing. I want all of these people to be in therapy that actually where they can process what it meant to love people who tried their best to destroy them and call it love. I want all these people to be able to experience an iota of the love that I experienced from my aunt. I want all these people to be able to, to, to heal their inner wounded child because that's what all this is about. And it's it's just it's shocking to me because this conversation should be the conversation. We have all of the data now to show how early childhood exposure to trauma shapes your entire life's outcomes. Right, right. And yet, we still talk about these people as if they are just quote sociopaths or just bad people. And every time I see someone who people call bad, I'm like, I wonder what their childhood was like. Yeah. And that's what, that shouldn't be seen as me being a compassionate person. That should be seen as me being uh, an honest person. We have all the data now to show how family systems and dynamics can either make or break people and that people like you actually should be the people we're listening to of how do you, how do you, when you grow up in those environments that teach you to restrict yourself, how do you get free when at a cellular and fundamental level, you're taught that your very freedom is a threat. Those are the stories that we need to uplift because they teach us that transformation is possible. Look, I make sense. (laughs) <laughs> people who know me from my childhood and know me now are like, you make complete sense. Right. What about the stories of people who don't make sense, who did something different? How'd they do it? How'd you do it? If what you're saying is true
1: about this mental health movement, then that's all we should be talking about, truly, because whether it's transphobia or making up uh the banning of this issue of the banning of books in schools because CRT none of them can define it but they're all about it or climate change like all of one of the things that frustrates me so much is we have we have the resources we have the skills we have the companies we have the politicians we have the systems we have everything we need to fix fill in the blank issue we have it all the money's there We've got megalomaniacal entrepreneurs that are buying Twitter just in the name of free, like that we have the money and he over, you know, he convinced a bunch of billionaires to give him money to do that, whether it happens or not. In a few days, he got $44 billion to make a deal like this. We have everything. And I feel like we just keep going around and around having these conversations every new earth day and every new, you know, May 17 and June 19th. And we have these days over and over again, year after fucking year. And then nothing ever happens. And if you're right, then what we all need to do is just go to fucking therapy for a year, like really hardcore therapy. We come out of that, or even as we're healing along the way, we come out of that clear minds, healed souls, and we can actually make progress on these big issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are the, we are the this is the this is the society that could eradicate. We're also creating the problem, but we can also eradicate. Mm -hmm. these problems. And yet we're not doing it. And I, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think that's it. And there's a bunch of
0: not healed people out there. Yeah. And the reason that people aren't going to therapy for a year is because it's expensive and because they have to work and because we have no spaces in our culture to actually grieve. So rather than attending to the grief, people sublimate it they erase it, they compartmentalize it, and they don't even know that it's there anymore. And repressed grief manifests as what? Resentment and anger and bitterness and vitriol. Wait, what do you mean life gets to be fun? Mm -hmm. Wait, what do you mean you get to be a kid and have people listen to you? Are you kidding me? My parents didn't listen to me, but instead of actually healing, like a healed adult looks at kids who are Practicing autonomy and says, wow, I wish I could have had that. You know, it's been really interesting for me to watch my parents become grandparents because the first emotion I had when I saw my parents interact with their new grandchild was envy because my parents are emotionally available to love their grandchild. And that wrecked me because I was like, where were you? (laughs) You know, and then I realized, oh my gosh. I'm actually fighting for this very world where they are available. This is the success. Success, exactly. This is not taking away from me. This is a very beautiful thing. And so I had to say, what's what's being hurt in me right now is sadness that I'm never going to get that. And I have to hold that for myself. That doesn't mean I have to gaslight myself into saying it's not there and pretend like it's optimistic. I have to hold and I have to ask myself, what would I have been like if I had my parents so affectionate for me? And then I have to forgive because, of course, my parents were. Because look at myself as an adult now, dealing with all this stuff. Am I going to be that emotionally available? when I have a kid? No, I have to practice self-compassion for for myself and for my parents. They didn't know what they were doing, especially at the time that I was born. There was no information for them on how to handle having a gender nonconforming child. They actually really tried their best. And so what I really... To do is every time I see people getting mad about an individual, I I really try to imagine what if we don't say they're ignorant and what if we say it makes sense based off of what they've been through in their life, and what if we think about their life, and what if we actually have empathy as our guiding light and we then respond with, I'm really sorry that what you went through was really painful and hard, but that doesn't give you license or permission to do it into other people, and in fact, I want to let you know. That like we're fighting for a world where no one has to go through what you went through. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. And that disarms people. Because what people are really asking for is, do you see my pain? And that's what's happening right now around trans kids is that trans kids are templating a form of love and possibility and wonder that so many adults have to look at and be like, that got truncated in me. And I, see, I, I hear stories from my friends. I mean, I didn't experience this and this makes me so privileged, but so many of my friends tell me that from a young age, any idea that they had, any way of dressing, anything that went contrary to what their parents wanted them to be was beaten out of them. And when you're a child, your parents are your everything. And to have that immediate bodily visceral feedback that you cannot be yourself that destroys you for the rest of your life. But here's the positive note, it doesn't have to anymore. Because like you said, the the luxury of being in this time is that we have so much more information about post-traumatic stress disorder, about trauma in our nervous systems, about therapy. We have whole new healing modalities and very ancient healing modalities. The reason that we're investing more in militarism and in bombs rather than comprehensive trauma-informed mental health care is because we don't want to be free. So that's where we have to begin. Why don't we want to be free? Why don't we want to be healed? The reason we don't want to be free and the reason we don't want to be healed is because we don't know who we are outside of our pain. So Bill and all of us other folks don't know who they are outside of their pain. And when they see so trans people saying, I want to live a life outside of pain and discomfort and irritation, that threatens them. At the beginning of every podcast episode
1: that I put out, you know, I, I do like a 30, 45 second like wow moment from the conversation. And you're making it really fucking hard <laughs> because I'm gonna have to re-listen and just and choose from my top 20 uh to put there. I, I love what you just said about parents, grandparents um kind of breaking the hurt people, hurt people cycle, mm-hmm. right? Um I was recording a conversation with another amazing uh, gender non-binary activist in la jeffrey marsh and they and i was i was talking about this hurt people hurt people thing similar to what we were talking about but it was a little bit different but i was talking about it, i brought up hurt people hurt people and i brought it up a couple times and jeffrey stopped me and said because i was talking about like it's a goddamn miracle that i'm one of 12 kids Mm -hmm. We grew up mostly in Guatemala, where my dad is from, born in upstate New York, but we moved back to Guatemala for like 10 years when I was growing up. My dad was very abusive. He's so much better now, completely changed individual. I sometimes break down, but most of the time feel joy when I think about how he treats my kids versus how he treated me. But- I think we have this unique opportunity, you and me and our different lives and the different work that we're doing and millions of other people that are our age doing the kinds of work that we're trying to do. We have the opportunity to, and Jeffrey said, like, you, you don't beat your kids. I don't treat my partner this way. We have to, we, we get this unique responsibility and opportunity to break that fucking cycle so that it stops and never starts again. Right. It's no longer hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, hurt generate, because my, my dad and his dad and his dad, and it's kept going and going and going. And like I said, it's a miracle. 12 kids, eight of us are married now, six with five or six with kids and nobody, nobody's beating their kids. Everybody's so tender, gentle, loving. I mean, just demonstrative love all the time, coming out in ways that we never experienced growing up. And so I do, I believe you. And I guess I haven't seen it enough. And maybe that's that's on me and that's on us to see it happen more, where we do approach the Bills and the Lauren Boberts of the world and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and these people that are just, my automatic response is, repul- like, You're repulsive, Madison Cawthorn. Like, I don't like you because you're a hypocrite. And you're just a horrible human. You just spend more time hating than anything else. More time opposing uh, the the people like you actually just having an existence. But you're so right that Madison Cawthorn is hurt, deeply hurt. So is Bill Maher. So is Marjorie Taylor Greene. So are you, so am I. And the cycle's got to stop for us to be able to tackle these big issues. They're going to keep, it's going to keep being next year's pride month and next year's Juneteenth and next year's earth day and next, like it's going to keep going. And then our kids are gonna have to deal with this bullshit like 15 years down the line when they're out of college and starting families and whatever. And they're going to be doing the same thing. And that's a stupid, that's, that's stupid.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that I always ask myself, you know, to Jeffrey's point I was hurt why why did I try try to do something different and it's it's truly because I had someone love me. Mm. It wasn't because people shamed me or told me that I was a bad person or stupid or ignorant. I had people who loved me when I first moved to New York. I knew that I was gender nonconforming but I didn't really know what that meant. I had been expressing myself at university where everyone knew who I was, so it wasn't a big deal because it's just a loke being a loke. But the anonymity of being in a city where people didn't know who I was meant I was experiencing so much more harassment. People spitting on me on the street, people laughing Mm. at me, taking videos of me, physical, sexual violence. And I met elder trans women of color, some of whom were at the Stonewall Rebellion in 1969, who took me under their wing. And basically said, hey, if you're going to dress like that, it's going to be really hard. I'm going to teach you how to defend yourself. It wasn't, hey, you should change. That's the love I had been shown before, which was, hey, you need to disappear yourself because it makes other people too uncomfortable. Mm. It was, you get to be you, but I'm going to help you be you in a way that's sustainable. And I had people who had my back. And for the first time, I was around people who loved me more than I loved myself who were proud of me before I was proud of myself, who saw me before I could see myself. And because of that connection and intimacy, that's how I've become the person who I am today. And that's why I feel so determined to bring this message of love to the world because I know it's possible. So when you're saying you don't see examples of in life, I guess I would push back to say, why are you looking externally for the examples and why are you not looking internally? The ways in which Hmm. you have transformed Hmm. your life are testaments to the fact that this works. I'll have an answer for you at some point,
1: but yes, I do. Yeah. That's a great point. Why am I not looking internally? Let's move on to, um, your advocacy in the degendering fashion space, because obviously when people meet you, even if it's just online, see you in a talk or in a post, your fashion is one of the first things that they see. And Side note, I'm so glad that my kids are growing up in a world where they, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, where they can see you and learn from you. My kids know who you are. My kids are not in the least bit turned off or repulsed or have ever thought anything other than a look looks really beautiful and cool and awesome. And it's just positive affirming things that would not have been, that was not me. At seven, nine, and ten. So, thank you for that. But you've said before that the future of fashion is gender-free, and if I'm not wrong, you created the degender fashion movement. This is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask anyway, so that you can talk about it. Why? Why is that important? Why is that important? And, and one little caveat, as you describe it, I hope this doesn't take us off in a, on a tangent. But I think. I'm wondering it myself. So a few months ago, Harry Styles shows up on the f- cover of Vogue in a dress. I think Harry Styles looked cool. It looked great. But there was obviously mixed feelings about that. Our beloved Billy Porter, whom I love and respect and look up to, blasted Harry for that. And mostly because, you know, Billy quote I started this conversation but they put Harry a straight white man on the cover and I hear that and understand that but or and if we're going to degender fashion shouldn't we also and I'm saying this as a straight Latino man shouldn't we also degender fashion to the point where we can praise a straight white, man for getting on the cover of one of the largest publications in a dress, feeling confident about that and not just have it have, uh, gender nonconforming people wearing dresses and, you know, dressing very loudly. Like, I think there should be more of that. Correct. Or, or, I mean, is this a situation where Harry's right and Billy's right
0: or. Yeah. It's a yes. And, Um, the issue right now is that people are comfortable with playing around with gendered fashion norms when it's more comfortable, when it's in a photo shoot, when it's on a runway, when it's for a red carpet. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when I'm on a subway train, it's a problem. So the issue is is that gender nonconforming people since the very beginning have been out here living this life all the time. In fact, we would be arrested, and that's the history of Pride, in New York City, we called it the three-article law, where you had to wear at least three articles consistent with your assigned sex, otherwise be thrown into prison. The reason people rioted at Stonewall was because of cross-dressing legislation, the ability to wear what they wanted to wear in public without being policed. And so it's through the visibility of trans and gender non-conforming people of color that Harry Styles is able to be on that. So I can both celebrate that and feel a sense of grief that my community, which has been doing this for decades, will never get the recognition because of white supremacy, heteronormativity, and misogyny. Is that Harry's individual fault? No. And that's why I'm not mad at him at all. My vision for the degender fashion movement is that everyone, regardless of their gender, can wear whatever they want to wear. So that means if straight cis dudes want to join me in wearing a ball gown, kudos. But we have to also then pay attention to the disproportionate ways that we're treated. Who is gonna be seen as brave and transgressive and who's gonna be seen as a faggot? Those things can't be lost in the outcome. But that's why I think, actually, the way that I describe the world is all of us are harmed by the gender binary. It just looks different. And I don't feel the need to like rank what that difference is. I don't feel the need to like protect that I'm more oppressed. I just feel the need to be specific. How so many straight cis men are harmed by the gender binary is they're not allowed to emotionally express themselves. They're not allowed to express themselves at all without being seen as feminine or gay. How that impacts me is I get punched on the street. So we have to be specific that even though these same systems are harming us, it maps out different on our bodies. And I think what's getting lost with the rise of quote unquote gender fluid fashion is the specificity. So we do need to have actually both. Billy's critique is a really trenchant critique of race and of class mm. that can't be lost. Harry's visibility is a really trenchant critique of a fashion system that can't be lost. I'm always interested in how do we hold the both and. When you ask why I'm I'm fighting in this movement to degender fashion it's just so fascinating because it goes back to what you were saying about body hair Anytime I do anything mainstream, I don't do it anymore, but I used to read comments. And then the, n- Good the most Stop. comments are all about my appearance. Mm. Ew, why, couldn't he at least shave if he wants to be taken seriously as a woman? Why does he draw attention to himself like that? So on the one hand, we have this paradox where people say fashion is superficial, and yet it's the number one thing that people comment on, our appearance. And so that's the double-edged sort of misogyny, right? We have so many men who say, Why do you care so much about what you what you look like? But then if you don't care about what you look like, you're gonna be demolished, right? So I actually think politicizing fashion and beauty is necessary because these are the marrow of where racism and transphobia and classism and all these other things live. They're actually value systems of who we says, who we believe belongs or not. So the reason I'm using fashion as a tool for political engagement is actually part of this tradition that begins at Stonewall and even before then of what I wear and what I look like is not the problem. You are the problem. Why do you care about a man in a dress on the cover of Vogue rather than wildfires, which were happening at the exact same time, raising Mm. the West Coast? Like, what does that say about you? Then the second thing that's really interesting to me when I'm thinking about fashion is I— read a lot of fashion history. I'm deeply enmeshed in academic fashion studies. And the interesting thing about fashion is that it it is a vehicle with which we can understand so much of contemporary culture, race, and gender. But the reason that we don't speak about fashion as political is because of its historic association with women. So what ends up happening is that the only forms of resistance that we uplift as revolutionary are men's participation in it. Whereas actually beauty parlors during the civil rights movement were many black women organized against racial apartheid and in fact mm. provided mm. some of the first economic empowerment for black women's communities and mutual aid and, and redistribution of resources that black women were actually able to create sanctuary to organize with other black women through beauty parlors. Why is that not a story we hear in civil rights history is because still we privilege the protest as it's described as the only form of dissent. And actually fashion historically has always been a tool deployed by marginalized people to challenge norms. Like uh, one of my favorite histories is uh, the history of Mexican women in cities like LA wearing the zoot suit as a way to challenge ideas of where they belonged in public or private space. These were some of the first women, brown women, to be wearing pants in public in the mid-1900s, and they've been completely erased from history, but when you actually read them, the pachutas, you listen to what they're saying. They're all saying, like, we understood that people didn't want us to belong in society, so we challenged that with our clothing. We wore oversized clothing because they thought Mexican immigrants should just be working, and so our outfits weren't like a uniform. Wow, They weren't like, mm. this is where you belong. We took up space. Fashion has always been about contesting who gets to exist in public space. So that's why I'm interested in fashion is because everywhere I go, I know people might not read my books, might not attend one of my performances, but how do I instill in them those same ideas is through fashion. It's the most democratic form of artistic engagement. Who's going to go to a gallery? Who's going to go to a performance? Who's going to go like, um, immerse themselves in artistic canon fashion allows you to bring all of those questions onto the subway right there so i think the immediacy of fashion the ways in which it makes and holds a mirror to people is so exciting to me And it's always been that case when i was younger i used to wrap my bathroom towels around me and style gowns and i would tell people i want to be a fashion designer and they'd be like only girls do that and i would be so embarrassed like what And now I look back and I'm like, that was my young me championing. I want to make the world more beautiful. And people were threatened by that because they'd rather be miserable than be beautiful, which is my diagnosis for the world. really. Do you still have aspirations to be a fashion designer? I've actually designed three collections. Oh, amazing. um, But they were for myself. (laughs) I think in the future, I want to design for the world. Yes, because I think it concretizes the kind of freedom that I want everyone to be able to experience. And if I could imbue that in a shoe or into a dress and allow people to feel that sense of possibility and creative combustion, I think that would be really rewarding. So you see what I'm wearing right now, which is just black and black.
1: And I have this uniform that I wear every day. Five years ago and before that, I would wear, I dressed way more eclectically. I shopped almost exclusively at like thrift stores and I would go and find the weirdest like hat and shirt and this and that. And I would pair things together and I really enjoyed that. And then my family moved. I left my nonprofit job, started out on my own and didn't have a lot of money. And I was traveling a lot and trying to figure out what my next life was going to look like career. And so I did the, for better or for worse, I did the, the zuckerberg steve jobs thing where i just said you know what i don't we we sold everything we had in seattle and literally my brother my partner three kids so six of us all of our belongings fit in the back of our minivan that was it it's all we own in the world so i got rid of almost everything i had two i had a duffel bag and a backpack to my name and Yeah, and so I just like started this uniform thing. I even gave a TEDx talk about uh, minimalism and the advantages that come along with it, right? Like I can get dressed a lot quicker than you can in the morning. Not that that's better or worse, but I can be ready in seven minutes flat, teeth brushed, face washed and everything. And um, sometimes I think about, I was just talking with my wife the other day about, not that I was happier back then, but I really enjoyed like, pairing of again it wasn't it was just a t- you know t-shirt or a button down or whatever but i enjoyed putting things together and i re- remembered this instagram post that you did i think it was last month and there was two photos side by side mm-hmm. one of them you have this you're wearing a dress and a wig and the next one it's you and it's a t-shirt mm-hmm. and uh i'll read the beginning part of the caption which said i took these selfies on the same day They're the same person with the same name and same identity. Why does our society regard and treat them so differently? How do we create a world where this aesthetic difference is unremarkable? Just another human being, just another human doing what humans do, changing. There is no before or after. There is no in or out of drag. Fast forward. I am playing dress up in both of these looks because I am a soul, invisible, invisible, and irreducible to a body. The rest is just adornment, a T-shirt, a wig, both elaborate forms of decoration. So I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about the impact that fashion does have because even I, this is a different form, but it's just dress up. Mm -hmm. Like I'm making a statement. I did a whole fucking TEDx talk about how my life, how I lived for two years out of a duffel bag and a backpack. I literally lived out of that for two years. So I was playing a part and I, that is by and large, you know, continue to this day because we've just been all over the place, starting all sorts of things. I haven't had time to think about clothes, but, um, yeah, I'm playing dress up in both looks. How do we, how does this movement develop? How do you envision getting to the point where me in my black Levi's in my black tee, I get the same look on the subway as you do. And that Nick is expressing himself. Aloka is expressing their self. And this is just how it is. And there's no second look. There's no second looking back at, oh, what is going on over there? Mm-hmm. How it's,
0: does this evolve to that point? We all have to play more. Mm-hmm. We have to interrupt people's ideas of who they think that we are. You know, sometimes I have fans recognize me on the street and they say, I just thought you'd be more colorful or more dressed up. And then I, I look at them and I'm like, hmm, think again, you know? Like, we are complex, multifaceted people who are constantly evolving and changing. We shouldn't reduce someone to one aesthetic or one identity. And so I love and relish the opportunity to play, which means sometimes I literally am just wearing gym shorts and a t-shirt. And that's me. And sometimes this is me. And I just asked myself, okay, how do I explore a new dimension of myself today? And to relate this to what we we're talking about before, play is something that was so fundamental to us when we were younger, and then we lost that appreciation because now we think you have to only do something if you're gonna be really good at it. And so there's just such a deep pressure to like not experiment with anything. But I love being a stage performer. Because play and experimentation are how we make our best creations. If I could sit down and say, hey, everyone, here's the next show I'm going to write. It's this. That would be amazing. That's not how the creative process works. The creative process works with, I'm going to try this, and I'll be six pages in and be like, I freaking hate this. Mm. But then one line from those six pages makes it into the next iteration. So it's only through trying and experimenting that I can get to the finished product. And I'll use that as a metaphor to describe what it means to be alive. We have to just experiment and play. And then that gives us the clues that we need to get to our next destination. So that's why I say that authenticity is not a destination, it's an orientation. And what I mean by that is that we don't know what the path or what the future holds. But what we can do is take compasses along with us. And some of my compasses are experimentation empathy and so every decision i'm making comes with those compasses i might in five years from now be what society would call norm core and i don't want anyone to think of that as a betrayal Mm. i don't want anyone to think of that as me like selling out or losing the fight no it's me doing as humans do changing and i think the deeper once again the icing is the politics the cake or the marrow, as I said before, is the spiritual, the deeper concern with people changing is actually an existential one. The universe and the earth templates change as the natural orientation of the world, Mm -hmm. i.e. seasons, (laughs) i.e. life and death. So it's a uniquely human phenomenon to sit here and be scared of change (laughs) when actually every single example that's templated for us it's not just that change happens, but actually that change is absolutely necessary. That without change, there's stagnation. And in stagnation, that's mass death, right? So I think the deeper existential and spiritual crisis is people fear change because they fear the unknown, right? And so, what I want to tell everyone listening is that the unknown shouldn't be feared because the unknown is how we've birthed everything. Before language, there was the unknown. Before gender, there was the unknown. The unknown is actually a fertile ground to build the world that we dream of. Do you think that we're going to get to a better world, to your point, about we keep making the same mistake? We're in the same rut, the same pride, the same May 17th. Do we think we're going to break out of that cycle unless we imagine something different? Mm. And playing is how we imagine something different playing is how we imagine a different relationship would change. So the
1: checklist here today is one is get healed, go to therapy, play more, stop calling people ignorant and start meeting them to talk through where they're hurt. As we begin to wrap up here, as I mentioned earlier, and it's just common knowledge, June is pride month. Hypothetically, hypothetically, if i could make you aloke the spokesperson for the world when it came when it comes to pride and you had a chance to address all corporations all businesses everyone on social media that's figuring out what they're going to change their logo to their face their picture to particularly in this current political and social climate that we're in like right now 2022 what would you as people prepare some people are thinking about it some people will take them by surprise and they'll try to come up with some performative (laughs) way to respond and to make sure that everybody knows that they're on board and supporting if you had everyone's attention and you had
0: some marching orders for them what would they be Hmm. there are no such thing as lgbtq issues there are issues that non-LGBTQ people have with themselves that they're taking out on us. Well, shit.
1: I mean, it's so true. It's so true that I love the flavor that you've brought to this conversation and the wisdom because it it, it, it really is these... What we're dealing with is a series it's a box full of made-up issues, just literally made up out of nowhere. We should be, I even think about people in my life that love, talk about diversity, and they love racial diversity, they love socioeconomic diversity, they love all the other diversities. But when it comes to this one, this is the one they fall short on, and they're like, well, I know a lot of, I mean, we, have, we, we could talk for a long time, I'm sure, about people that are fine with the L in the G." In the B and the, oh, we got to skip over the T. The T is where I get some, I get into trouble. They, that, the, they are a problem. And so you're so right. These are not actual issues. The issue is with the people that need to stop thinking of this as a, this world as a zero sum, wait, if, if loke wins, that means somebody has to lose. No, it, do, it doesn't fucking mean that. Alok can win. And Lauren Boebert can win, and so can Bill Maher, and so can I. Like, we can all win. And this gender diversity is a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. It really is. Like, you make the world much, much better, not worse in any way. Like, to have people like yourself being who you are, not just existing but thriving, is a benefit to – New
0: York City and all the people you get to. I mean, I have this longstanding joke where I'm like, the city of New York should really be paying me because I make tourists so happy. They can point and be like, look what I saw. <laughs> it's like a I get, safari yes. for them. Like, the artsy weirdos are here in New York City. I'm like, this is all un- uncompensated, everyone. Thank you so much. But truly, we have done so much to make life less boring. Wow, imagine how banal the world would be without trans people. And that's why it's so frustrating because it's like you literally, all of the things that are so beautiful and precious about this life, a lot of them come from us. So without us, you're going to be having the most boring parties, the most boring fashion. It's just tragic. We're saving you from your own boredom. And people are mad about that. They're like, no, I want to be boring. Yikes.
1: Now, if people, this this last question just came to me, so I did not prep you for it. So if you don't have an answer, we can get it out later, maybe in the intro or the outro. But if people say, yes, a lot of this stuff is new to me. I love this conversation. Alok is amazing. Where do I go from here? Besides following you on social media and learning from you directly, what books, uh, authors, uh, talks online, like where would you point someone if they do want to learn uh, the history of some of these things? just Maybe
0: as just a starting point. Yeah, I mean, that's why I do my book reports is because there's so many people who want to learn more and don't know where to go, and that's why I've compiled over 800 different book recommendations for people to do it and put them in pretty pictures with like easily digestible language so that they can. So that project was really important to me because I was like, right now, so much of this information in history is gatekept to people with college degrees. And that, that feels unacceptable to me. So I'm going to use my my academic training to help make this accessible to large swaths of people. And that's what I did with my book, Beyond the Gender Binary, too, is I was challenged to write it at a 12-year-old reading level, which I really appreciated because so often the gender conversation, the language is really hard for people. So I really tried to mine it down to its easiest phrasing and I think it is a success that young people and old people can both read it and be like, "Oh, it's actually not that big of a deal." I read it the other day, reread it as a refresher just
1: before this, and it's—I mean, you it can read it in an hour. Yeah. And it's so—it's—it's it's not fluff; like it's substance. Where can people find that 800 book? Is that is that on your website? It's on your on social my, media?
0: Yeah, I'm on Goodreads. Okay, <laughs> I'll link to all that because yeah. that's super helpful. I mean, I want to. And I the have list. it divided into different topics amazing yeah alok thank you so much
1: for joining us today i truly hope at some point we can do this again i have so much more to talk to you about but um this has been truly helpful you're amazing thank you
0: thank you so much
1: friends thank you so much for showing up thank you so much for spending some time with alok and me this week To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at let's give a damn.com I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.